If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 28. And uh, we'll get to that in a second. So we are in the middle of a series. In the middle is is a very loose term. We, we are in a series that we've been in for a little while, since January, off and on, where we've been looking through the book of Genesis. And the book of Genesis is a pretty long book. There's a lot of things going on in the book of Genesis. We've been sort of at, at a... I don't, I, don't know if, I don't know if you could say it slowly or quickly or whatever, but we've been going through the book of Genesis. We've been trying to sort of figure out what, what are the dominant themes here? What are, the, what are the questions that are being asked? What are, the, what are the things that are being challenged? What are the new thoughts and the new ideas that are being play, put forth in this very ancient book that we happen to have at the beginning of our Bibles? So in Genesis 28, what we have so far, if you, if you were with us last week, we saw a story about a guy named Jacob who has a twin brother named Esau, who is like minutes older than he is, which makes Esau the firstborn. So Esau is entitled to, uh, to, to all the birthright, to all, I'm sorry, to, to all the entitlements that come along with being the firstborn, to what was known as the birthright and the birthright blessing. And what we saw over the last couple of weeks is that Jacob has sort of progressively stolen all of those things from Esau. And so now Esau is quite upset about that. And Esau has just realized that Jacob has kind of stolen a lot of these things. And Jacob is on the run. He's running for his life. Esau has, has said that as soon as his father dies, he's going to kill him, which is not something you want. Um, it's not something you want anybody to say about you, much less uh, so, someone who's supposed to be this close to you. And so, uh, so Jacob has to go on the run. And in Genesis 28, he's kind of in the middle of a space. He's, he's, no, he's no longer in his home where he's come from, but he's also, he's headed to a place that he can't get to in one day. So he has to basically, he, he's run out of daylight and he has to stop wherever he happens to be and he has to get some sleep. He can't keep moving any longer. So in Genesis 28... Verse 10, it says this. It says, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. So a certain place is almost kind of like a way of saying no specific place. If it had been a specific place, they would have named the place. But a certain place is basically like he was just there. He he just happened to be where he was. And so he stops um, because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. And so from, from this point, uh, from chapter 12, it says, He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So from here, we get a bananas dream scene that Jacob has that we do not have time to unpack or even really, quite frankly, the wisdom to know exactly how to unpack it. There, there's a lot going on in this dream sequence, and it's kind of... It's, it's one of those things, like books have been written about this. But basically what we can say is whatever happens in the dream, Jacob feels like he's had some sort of an encounter with the divine. So he feels like the dream isn't just some like bizarre fever dream. Like he's actually, he feels like he's been communicated with at some level with, with God. And so Jacob then wakes up. And then after Jacob wakes up in verse 16, it says, when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven, which is an interesting thing to say when you're in the middle of nowhere and you just happen to have stopped there because the sun had set. So Jacob says this interesting thing where he says, surely God was in this place. 
and I was not aware of it. There's a book by a rabbi named Lawrence Kushner. It's actually, if you're on our website, there's a link to the Amazon page if you're interested in this book. But it's, it's this entire book that's written just about this one sentence that Jacob says, surely the Lord was in this place and I was not aware of it. What's going on here is Jacob has had an encounter with the divine. And rather than saying something like, well, finally, God has shown up. Instead, Jacob says, surely God was in this place. And I was not aware of it. I remember, um, I mean, I've been to like countless church services, youth camps, uh, like seminary classes, whatever. And one of the common prayers that you will often hear people will say is they will like, they will say, dear God, please show up in this place. Please be here with us. And one of the things that we see in this story is is the inverse of that. It's the opposite of that. Jacob doesn't say, well, God finally showed up. Jacob says, surely God was in this place and I was not aware of it. The problem was not, is God with us or is God not with us in the story? The problem is, is Jacob aware that God is in this place or is he not? And it's no coincidence, by the way, that the thing that happens right before Jacob makes this declaration is that the narrator tells us when Jacob awoke, Jacob wakes up which is way more than just he was asleep and now he's awake. It is, oh, Jacob becomes more conscious. He becomes more aware. And all of a sudden, he is cognizant of something that has been true the whole time. Surely, God was in his place. And I was not aware of it. The divine presence has been with him the whole time. And in this moment, in time, this is kind of a profound idea. Because in this time and in this place, the conventional wisdom about the divine or about the gods was that there are certain places that are more sacred or more holy than other places. The general convention, and we've talked about this a lot, but basically there was this idea that there's this three-tiered relationship or basically a three-tiered structure of, of the universe where we we live on like this medium middle plane where human beings are and then below the earth there is like this is the realm of the dead and then above the earth this is where the gods dwell. And so the belief was that you had to be in a specific like holy, sacred, high place to interact with the gods because that's where the gods were. So the belief was that you had to either go to a specific place, a specific mountaintop or a specific temple. You had to go to a higher point of elevation or you had to go to a temple where the gods specifically would go when they would descend to our plane because they could only go to certain places. The elevator only goes to certain locations. And so there were these beliefs that in order to interact with the gods, you had to go to certain places or the gods had to come to certain places for you to interact with them. But here we're told Jacob's in the, in the middle of nowhere. He didn't go to this place on purpose. He just happened to be here when the sun set and he goes to sleep and then he wakes up. And the first thing he says when he wakes up is surely the Lord is in his place. And I was not aware of it. Apparently, one of the things that Jacob is coming to realize is that there are not more sacred places than others. That the question isn't, am I near a place where the divine can be? The question is, am I awake to the reality of the divine all around me? So th this continues to sort of be kind of a recurring motif throughout the scriptures. If you look at the book of Exodus chapter three, in the book of Exodus, uh, you've got this guy named Moses who has who has come out of a global superpower the, the the nation of Egypt and now he's no longer there but he's off basically he's 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 kind of in hiding he's working as a shepherd and he has 
an encounter with the divine that is not necessarily in a preordained, holy, specific space. So in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now Moses was tending the flocks of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of the fire within the bush. Moses saw that the bush was on fire. It did not burn up. So, Moses, so, sorry, so, it's been a long week for all of us, guys. So, Moses, you know, Moses supposes his toes is, which a lot of singing in the rain around here. Anyway, Moses. So, Moses thought, I will go over and see the strange sight. Why does the bush not burn up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So Moses is up and he's, he's not preparing any sort of like sacred ritual. He's doing his job. He's at work. He's tending to his flocks. And all of a sudden, he has an encounter with the divine. And the divine says, take off your shoes because where you're standing is holy ground. So the question becomes, was the ground holy because God all of a sudden showed up in a burning bush? Or is it possible that this is where Moses happened to be when he became aware that God was in his place? Is it possible that all the ground is holy? And so the whole thing becomes a question not about like where does God like show up and when does God not show up? The question that the scriptures continues to ask is, when do we become aware that the divine is in this place? And I was not aware of it. So apparently it's possible to be standing on holy ground and to not even know it. So there are these stories that we have these stories all through the scriptures of people who are hiding or in fear or they're drifting or they're detached in some sort of way. And it's in these places that they realize that God is in this place, that they're standing on holy ground. They realize, but, but the thing is, it's, it's not the, that it's, it's not this specific ground that's holy. It's that all the ground is holy. The ground has been holy the whole time. We just didn't know it. God was in this place and I was not aware of it. So again, conventional wisdom at the time was that if you wanted to directly engage with the gods, with the divine in some sort of way, you needed to do so in some kind of sacred space, structure, temple, whatever. And over and over and over again, the scriptures continue to say, no, 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 the ground has been holy the whole time. Surely God was in this place and I was not aware of it. Take a look at the Psalms. In Psalm uh, number 19, this is, we, we got this ancient Hebrew poetry in which people are sort of exploring what does it look like for us to engage or think about or to talk about God, to, to talk about the divine. And so in, in Psalm 19, just beginning in verse one, right at the beginning, it says the heavens. And the heavens, by the way, we tend to have this, this notion of the heavens as like heaven is a place where you go when you die. But in the ancient Hebrew consciousness, the heavens were just like whatever is above here. Again, it's that three-tiered view of the universe. The heavens, is just, it's, it's where the gods live, but it's also just the sky. So it says the heavens, the skies, declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of God's hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes into all the earth. Their words 
to the ends of the earth. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. So once again, there, there's this like conventional wisdom is there are these very specific holy spaces. But the poet here is, no, any place that exists under the sky is a sacred space. The skies themselves are like somehow like constantly giving off a message that there is a divine presence in this place. The poet seems to believe that all of reality is sacred space. Um, look at, and then if, if we take this idea, this, this idea that the poet in Psalm 19 is sharing with us, and then we jump over to Luke chapter 19, Jesus says this interesting thing that I think is often misunderstood because we, we tend to be so literal and we, we tend to not like look for the poetry in the things that we're reading. So in, in Luke chapter 19, there's this really interesting scene in which Jesus is about to be confronted. And in verse 37, it says, when he, when Jesus came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So everybody, like Jesus is in this place and people are celebrating and they're having like the, these like grand moments of just exuberance and they're expressing this these emotions that they're feeling. And then in verse 39, it says, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, they're being too loud. Can you please tell them to be quiet? And then in verse 40, Jesus says, I tell you, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. So I <laughs> I remember one time, this is this is one of one of the things that I most remember from being a youth pastor. It's the weird, it's the things you never expect to remember forever that you end up remembering forever. I, I was, uh, we, we were doing a youth camp one year and there was like a, a, like a drama group, like a skit group that, that was performing like little short dramas every single night. And I remember one of the nights, uh, the, the drama group, and if for some reason, if you're watching this and you happen to have been in this, uh, in this particular skit, you know, great job. But there was a, there, there was a skit where there, there were like five or six different teenagers on stage like draped in garbage bags because they were rocks. They were playing the parts of rocks and the rocks were all having conversations about whether or not it was too quiet. And if it, if it gets too quiet, then the rocks have to start singing like Jesus songs. And so the whole, the whole skit was an argument, a theological argument between actual rocks, people dressed in trash bags, playing the parts of rocks very convincingly. And having an argument about whether or not they could start singing because everybody else had stopped singing. Again, this is what happens when you take things fully literally. Is Jesus saying in Luke chapter 19, is, is Jesus saying like, look, if everybody stops singing these particular types of songs, rocks will start making crazy noises. If that is what he's saying, I would like to propose a social experiment in which we see that this actually happens. I need to see this. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying because Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. Jesus comes from this ancient tradition where they were reciting Psalm chapter 19. In Psalm chapter 19, saying that the skies are literally singing songs. No, Psalm chapter 19 is saying that all of reality, in, in just by the fact of its very existence, all of reality continues to remind us that there is a divine presence in our midst. It is not the rocks are gonna start making weird noises. It is the rocks, simply by being rocks, 
are playing their part in the story. So the, again, if we take this too literally, we miss like the profound nature of what's actually being said. What's actually being said is, you know, the whole thing is sacred. All the space is sacred. It, it isn't, okay, if you go to these certain places and sing these certain songs, then that is how you encounter the divine. According to these stories, it's, you no, know, the whole thing, the whole thing has been sacred the whole time. All space is sacred. This continues to be the recurring reminder that we find over and over and over again from Jacob in the middle of nowhere to Jesus talking about rocks crying out over and over and over again. We have this reminder that the whole thing is sacred. The ground has been holy the whole time. The insistence here is that there isn't, again, there isn't certain spaces that are good in certain spaces that aren't. And I realize, I think a lot of us, we grew up with this notion that there are certain spaces that are more or less holy or more, more or less sacred. And we see this right now, right? Like um, what, one of the things that I continue to see because I guess I'm a masochist and I keep like being shown these kinds of things is like pastors and religious leaders arguing about whether or not they should be having services right now with like thousands of people. Because if they don't have their services in their buildings with their jumbotrons and their smoke machines and their tech team and their pews and their carpet and their parking lot, if they don't have it in exactly the space that they like, that they're being persecuted and that they're not allowed to like to worship and they're, they're not allowed to have some sort of church service. Which is, again, what is that? What, that, that? That is a way of saying, like, we, like our ability to encounter the divine is restricted to these buildings, to, to these spaces and these methods and, like, this particular wardrobe and this particular, like, time in the week and with, like, behind this particular podium and, like, mashed in together in pews or folding chairs or whatever. And th this has become, like, one of the, one of the dominant, like, arguments right now which is which is basically like is, is church canceled is like and 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 the thing is like no because the whole thing is a church the whole thing is sacred the ground has been holy the whole time and if if i have to be in a certain building in order to have some sort of divine sacred profound encounter then the story i'm a part of has actually gotten quite small and so what we find in the story is, no, 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 like Jacob, Jacob isn't in a temple. He's, he just happens to be in the middle of nowhere because that's where he was when the sun set. And that is where he says, surely God was in this place. And I was not aware of it. Moses doesn't know where he is. He's not, he's not, cogn he's not like cognitively aware that he's nearer or like further or nearer to a sacred space. It just turns out the ground was holy the whole time. The rocks cry out, not because everybody stopped making noise and rocks started making crazy sounds. The rocks cry out because the rocks are part of this sacred canvas that has been with us the whole time. The, the ground has been sacred, whether we knew it or not. And if, if, I, if I'm sitting here wringing my hands over whether or not I can be in a building or like be in a crowd... And whether or not that's a wise thing to do right now versus like, but, but what, what, what will I do if, if my religion is canceled? But it's not because the ground has been sacred the whole time.
And if you need if you need that space and that building to feel like you're a part of something larger, then your story has gotten too small. The ground has been sacred the whole time. Surely God has been in this place, and I was not aware of it. The invitation here is to wake up to the divine presence all around us. So, so there is this one dimension that continues to insist that all space is sacred. And that when, when, when we feel as though we have sort of lost some sort of connection to something larger than ourselves, it's not that we have to go to a specific location. It's, it's the invitation to, to wake up to the sacred space that we currently are standing on. But there's, there's also there's more going on here because there's always more going on here. There's another dimension. Because so far we've seen um, kind of an empathic reading of this. Like there, there's, there's a, a deeply empathic way to read this, which is you are not alone. Wherever you are, you are in, in a sacred space. Surely God is with you, and even when you're not aware of it, which is a beautiful thing that we continue to hope to remind people of and invite people into an awareness of. But, but there's also a real-time engagement dimension to this as well, because the insistence is not simply that the ground is sacred so we should feel like comfortable or some amount of peace which hopefully we do feel some amount of peace or comfort or grace in those moments where we are able to to sort of tap into this larger kind of thing that we're invited to participate in but there's also there there's a tactile there is a responsive invitation to this as well take a look at Matthew chapter 6 in Matthew 6 Jesus says, um, this is actually a prayer that Jesus prays. In, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, Jesus says, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, or holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, make this space the way you always hoped it would be. And then in verse 11, it says, Give us today our daily bread. So immediately after make this space the space that you always hoped it would be, there is this, again, very tactile dimension of, and make sure that we all have enough bread to eat. Make sure that none of us go hungry. So again, there, there is this, this larger sort of God is in this place and I wasn't aware of it, but again, it, get, it gets very tactile very quickly. Uh, like um, p- part of making the world a space in which God is in this place and people become more and more aware of it is making sure that people have enough bread to eat. There is a tangible dimension to the presence of the divine in the world. Jesus actually unpacks this a whole lot more in Matthew 25. In Matthew 25, verse 31, uh, it says, this is Jesus speaking. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and this is a weird scene. And we've looked at this before, but I, I cannot, I feel like I always have to preface this by saying, this is weird. And if we're going to take this and look at it, we have to first acknowledge, like, these are not images that we're, that we're just used to. Even, even in the words of Jesus, this is something that a lot of us, like, like what, what do we even do with this? Because it gets really weird really quickly. But anyway, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. 
I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. When we offer grace or comfort or support or resources or solidarity with people who suffer, there is a divine presence in that moment. When we, when we raise our voices and insist that Jacob Blake being shot in the back seven times by a police officer is unacceptable. And when we demand justice where there has been no justice, there is a divine presence with us. We are on holy ground. The, Jesus here is insisting when we lend our voices to those who have been wounded or marginalized or who have the boot of power on their neck, sometimes literally, when we stand in solidarity with people who fit that description, Jesus is saying, I'm with you in those moments. That is when you are encountering me. There is a divine presence. Surely God is in this place even when you're not aware of it. When you engage the world with a sense of healing and justice and grace and generosity, that those are the moments when Jesus says, yeah, I was with you the whole time and you weren't even aware of it. Whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did that for me. There was a divine presence in your midst. However, he turns it a little bit, gets a little darker. And then in verse 41, Jesus continues and says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. Then he, they will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is harsh. And I do want to say just real quickly, sort of, it's, it's weird to sort of read this and, and try and find like a literal kind of like parallel with this, because if, if, if the read on this is People who do certain things go to hell when they die or people who don't do certain things don't go to hell when they die or whatever. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying, mostly because like there are other places that directly sort of like fly in the face of that. So I don't think that this is about like what happens to you after you die. I don't think that that's what the story was about. And I, I could build that argument out if I had a lot more time. But that I, I would argue that's not what's going on in the story. I would argue what's going on in the story is Jesus is saying there are those in our midst who are participating in what God is doing in the world, who are bringing goodness into the world. And when those people engage the world like that, they are bringing divine presence with them. God is in this place. Whether or not they're aware of it, they are, they are engaging the divine in some sort of mysterious, beautiful way. But in contrast to the first scenario, when we, de when we deny justice to the oppressed, and to the marginalized, when we refuse to allow black Americans to be credible witnesses to their own experiences, when we turn a blind eye to state-sanctioned violence or religious abuse, when, when churches 
shelter religious abusers because they're worried about what it's going to do to their attendance and their giving. There is something dark in that moment. When, again, when we refuse to allow black Americans to be witnesses, to bear witness to their own experience. When, when we allow our own desire for power to be a thing that is prioritized above helping secure safety and health and grace to people who are desperate. When we deny those things, we are removing ourselves from the story that Jesus is telling. I would argue that what Jesus is saying here is not that you're going to go to hell when you die if you don't do these things. I would argue that what Jesus is saying is when you refuse to, when you refuse to participate in this kind of story, you're bringing hell into the world now. You're making things worse. You're, we, we are not participating in the story that God is telling. The whole thing starts with, surely the Lord was in this place and I wasn't aware of it. And then Jesus kind of challenges us and takes it further and says, yeah, and sometimes the divine is in this place and we do nothing to participate in, the, in that reality. Surely the divine was in this place and it looked the other way while people suffered and while people died and while people cried out for their voices to be heard. Surely God was in this place and I wasn't aware of it. Surely God is in the hospital room with Jacob Blake and his family right now. And so the question becomes, will we bear witness to these things? Will, will, we, will we lend our voices to, to support and to offer love and grace and justice to people who are crying out for it? What does it look like for us to not simply wake up to, surely God was in this place and I wasn't aware of it. What does it look like for me to live my life as if that were true? As if I was invited to participate in a story in which Jesus says, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did that for me. But whatever you didn't do, you also didn't do that for me. Surely God is in this place and we can choose to participate in that story or we can choose to not. All the ground is sacred. And so the question becomes, do we acknowledge it and do we wake up or do we just keep on walking with our shoes on? Let me pray for us. God, may we wake up to the divine presence in our midst. For those of us who feel alone, afraid, abandoned, may we, may we have these moments in which we sense that the ground is sacred, in which we wake up to the possibility that God is in this place even when we're not aware of it. But the greater challenge, may we, may we become people who are not simply aware that you are in this place, but people who are engaging with the world around us as if that were true. May we, may we interact with the least of these brothers and sisters of yours as if we are interacting with you. May we offer shelter and love and generosity and hospitality to those who are crying out for it most. May we, may we not accept abuses of power because we know that you are with the powerless. May we find that we are participating in a story 
in which you continue to insist, I am in this place, then you can participate in what I am doing here. May we do that. May we wake up. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.